Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode 12 of the Former Action Guys podcast. I'm your host, Justin Kramer. And this week's episode, I've got, man, I've been looking forward to this. It's the one I've been talking about. Um, actually, he's uh, pretty close to being my my next door neighbor. He's not my next door neighbor, but he's pretty close. Um, so this week we have on Captain Jerry Geller. He was a F-4 Phantom pilot in Vietnam and was shot down uh, during one of his missions. Um, so he came on to tell a story. We, I, I asked for some questions from the crowd out uh, on my Instagram and on Facebook and stuff, um, but he was kind of short for time, so um, I, I wasn't able to get to those, but we are going to sit down and, and continue the conversation, um, so it's a great episode we get into, you know, his flight training and stuff like that, you know, working into the jet, you know, you're talking early to mid-60s is when he's going through his flight training and stuff, so, and then uh, obviously his trip to Vietnam, uh, or his deployment to Vietnam, I don't want to make it sound like it was something, you know, something great, so. All right, um, yeah, I have a couple of comments here, so I missed a, uh, or I didn't miss one, but I had already recorded the last episode when this one came in, um, a review, I got another five-star review on the, on the, uh, Apple platform, I think that's the only one that you can actually leave ratings and reviews from what I've seen, because I, I personally use Google Play and Spotify, um, and I don't think you can rate or leave actual written reviews on either one of those, but uh, whatever. So I appreciate it. Uh, those of you that are using the Apple, uh, if you're, um, you know, on iTunes, you go on and give give a good rating, you know, get the word out, let people know that this is a good podcast. Get me up there where, I don't know, I'm hovering down with some of the garbage podcasts that I don't think anybody's listening to. And we actually got a pretty good audience here and I think um, some good stories. So anyway, thanks for the ratings. This one is from... Uh, Eirik 336 I don't know if you misspelled it or if that's how you spell it E-I-R-I-K 336 says Yut I think I started listening to the podcast when it first came out anyways great podcast the atmosphere is really relaxed not interview like which is great there's another podcast out there Global Recon and which is good but not very not very put together well um, I think he meant not well put together anyway the boot camp podcast was hilarious. I was dying in my car listening to it. It reminded me of being on the island back in 2012. I like how you're putting a voice out there for the Marine JTAC community that most forget about. Um, hey, thanks for the comment, Eric. Eric336. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, Global Recon, actually. I I think when I first started listening to podcasts, I started listening to Soft Rep Radio. And then I think Global Recon was one that I was started listening to as well. Um, there was a few. Uh, I kind of fell off of a, basically all of them. I listened to soft rep until both the hosts quit and then I just haven't really picked it back up. It was, I thought it was all right, but I think it changed some when the new host, they have a, a British SAS guy coming on there. But anyway, yeah, I think I've listened to global recon. Um, not a bad podcast though, if I remember correctly, but I appreciate the good comment. Uh, I appreciate the five star review. Uh, keep it coming. Like I said, it helps everyone help us out or helps out. So, um, yeah. And then, so I have, 
I had another one. I've had a few people ask me questions about Syria, about this whole Syria Turkey thing. Um, and I'll be honest, my knowledge of the Kurds and stuff is not a. This is the conflict that's happening there is something that's been building over a long, long, long period of time, you know. Um, and I just don't know the history of it. And I know we sent guys there, we have guys there, or we did. And I understand. I understand how, you know, so we, my Mew was the first, we were sending the first Marine artillery unit in there and we, you know, we got to do that stuff, which was cool. I didn't get, I was, I was just helped in like logistics and administrative, like, Hey, we're sending this Anglico team. We're sending these dudes here. We're sending these guys there. Um, that was my role in it. So I didn't have any boots on the ground experience there, but, um, I mean, it's a tough one. I think it's a tough one and we should stand by our allies like that, but it's the same people that are saying that we're, we're ditching the Kurds. You know, I never heard these same issues or complaints when, you know, we left Sangin or we left Marja or whatever, when these advisor teams pulled out and it was like, Hey, you got it now. And then our Afghan partners were getting just slayed, you know, our, 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 we have short term memory. I don't know what's going on, how one is different than the other. Um, you can say that the Afghan government is corrupt, but I mean, there's the Kurd, I don't know a lot about the Kurds. I'm not, I don't know if they're perfect. I don't know what's going on with their whole situation, but there are people without land. And I know that's obviously a lot of drama over there. And it's just, so I can see both sides. I can see why it's like, Hey, why are we involved in this, in this whole thing? But I can also be like, Hey, these dudes stood and fought with us and women as well. There's, you know, it's, they're famous for that. Um, but they're all fighting and stuff and i don't know i just having having the experience of working with a you know indigenous population and doing you know operations with them and and just being in combat with them and then seeing them left behind it's it's sad it's depressing but i just haven't had anybody be able to give me a good answer of why we are making such a big deal about the kurds and we didn't make as much of a big deal when we're leaving Afghanistan. Um, I just don't, I don't see the difference because ISIS is moving into Afghanistan. Um, they're actually fighting with the Taliban there as well. Um, and it's just, I just don't see the difference. So it's hard for me. And, and I think both is wrong. And I'll say that I don't, I'm not saying like, Oh, I don't see the difference. So fuck them. Fuck the Kurds. Fuck, you know, these guys. No, I'm not. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's where's the outrage, you know? And then two, Let's say our dudes were going to stay there. Let's say Trump, because I don't, obviously none of us know the conversations between them. You know, we see the letter that there's a letter that came out today, which I don't know the full contents of that. I haven't read it. Um, but, you know, we don't, I don't, I don't pretend to know the the top secret briefings that are happening and the information that's being passed. Maybe he pulled them out on a whim, but also maybe it was like, hey, we're, Turkey's like, hey, we're, we're doing this attack no matter what. And is it worth keeping our dudes there and possibly getting one killed and then starting another war in the Middle East with another country? So, and that's the other problem is NATO is an, or uh, Turkey is a NATO ally. So you have the Kurds on one side, which fought beside us and helped us defeat ISIS. And on the other side, you have Turkey, which is a NATO ally. Um, Turkey overall, I believe, is a scumbag run nation. Um, from what I understand, again, I'm not very good with the, I'm not in depth with the regional politics. So, um, 
if feel free to enlighten me if you feel free to hit me up at former action guys podcast at gmail.com or on instagram at uh, jkramer graphics shoot me a message um and ask you know put in your two cents on a read it on air because i don't fully understand and i know guys that have worked over there and i know we've lost guys over there uh, i think staff sergeant carden was a uh 08 11 that he was a gun chief i believe and you know he was killed in a rocket attack so there's you know people have been lost there but Again, what's the difference between that and Afghanistan? Why are we outraged about one and not the other? Both of them were concerned with with terrorists, harboring terrorists, and stuff like that. So I don't, I guess I don't fully understand the issue. And so yeah, people have been asking my opinion, and I'm, I'm, that's my opinion is I don't really know enough about the geopolitical um, terrain there. I'd have to look more into it. Um, but I think, I think anytime that we leave behind allies that have helped us in the war it's a it's a bad idea and i also know that it's got to be kind of a tough spot because one like i said one side's an ally against isis the other side is an ally through nato and um i I did see that president trump had put out sanctions i believe the uk and france as well there was a few european countries that also oh italy was one because i remember someone mentioning that Italy provides uh, some of their attack helicopters and stuff like that, so that could actually be a significant uh, sanction on the Turkish uh, government. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a weird situation. At the same time, at the same time, people sending two thousand troops into Saudi Arabia. So, you got that. So it's like how how can you justify one and not justify the other? Um, one, to be a hundred percent honest, one has a bigger play on the world stage, and and that's the Saudi oil. And I don't think necessarily the American oil program anymore, just because we make so much of our own or we extract so much of our own that um, like when, when the, the Saudi refinery got, you know, destroyed or uh, bombed or attacked or whatever, the American oil didn't, or the American gas prices really didn't rise much. Um, part of that was because we released part of the strategic reserve and stuff like that. But it, you know, part of it is that we are producing so much that, we have less of a need on OPEC oil. Um, so, however, you know, the people that scream that we should be out of the oil industry and stuff like that are also the people that haven't been probably to a third world country where these people rely on that. You know, they rely on oil for cooking and running generators and electricity. You know, it's not it's not easy for them to give up. So it may not have affected us here in the U.S., that attack on the oil refinery. But it definitely did attack the rest of the world, or excuse me, it definitely did affect the rest of the world. So I understand why we're sending troops there because I don't, I I wouldn't, having worked with Saudi Arabian soldiers, I wouldn't trust their capabilities. I mean, you saw just, if you've, if you've seen it, saw it in the news, a, uh, a rebel group, a Houthi rebel group, I think it killed like, in one attack, 500 Saudi Arabian soldiers and captured like another 2000 or 2500 and i mean that's just insane and i always said that it felt like our training that we did with them seemed like a more like a dog and pony show you know we're prepping for the big show at the end of the training exercise rather than like real world like hey this is how you do stuff and which i think i mean we were fine with it because we got ranges and ammo and stuff and they were fine with it because they got to look good in front of their king or prince or whoever it was but it obviously the uh the lack of taking it serious has uh you know taken its toll when you're losing 
500 dudes in one fight, you know, in, in like one day. So, um, yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, it's a lot of geopolitical stuff. I didn't really want to get too, too involved into that. And I know people are waiting to, to hear on the, hear the interview. So, like I said, that's coming up. Um, Jerry's a good dude. And yeah. So before we get to that though, Hey, take a look at my website, uh, jkramergraphics.com. If you need uh, graphic design work or if you need, um, clothing, shirts, hoodies, hats, embroidery, print, you know, what are you looking for? Big thing right now is laser etched coffee mugs. Um, if you're doing those for like a unit or a company, if you do, if, if you're looking to order a couple of those, that's 1995, I'll do them 1995 each. It's a laser etched coffee mug. Um, so Take a look at that. It's something that's a cool gift. You know, holidays are coming up or you want to do something for, I think, you know, my section in the Mew, um, when I was with the S3, before I left the Mew, we did a, a Yeti mug um, with the laser etching and stuff like that. And then where well, I did another one, I don't remember where the other one came from. It might've been a ball gift, but those are cool. If you if you have them, they're, they're super convenient. They're good for, I take mine camping and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, so check that out if that's something you're interested in. And then, yeah, check out my Instagram, Graphics and formeractionguyspodcast at gmail.com. Hit me up on that. Um, oh, yeah. Shit. I almost forgot. I got an email. I did get an email on there. Um, this one came out after they listened to Sergeant Major Offits, um, which I hope everyone enjoyed that. That was, I mean, we're, cool thing is, is uh, tomorrow I'm recording this. Um, Wednesday night, it'll be released on Thursday morning. So if you're listening to it, it releases Thursday morning, Thursday evening. I'm sitting back down with Sergeant Major Offit or Tracy that I'll call him from, from out, you know, for here on out. Jeez. And then Michael Farrell, uh, he was with first Anglico as well. And we're all three going to sit down and have some beers and just kind of shoot the shit and we'll see how it goes. I think it's going to be a good episode. So make sure you check that one out. So anyway, um, I'm not going to say his last name, but Karsten wrote in and said, Really honest, zero embellishments in his stories. After three pumps and one five with this guy, without a doubt, the most influential influential person in my career. Great subject for a podcast. Slightly upset I didn't hear the old man say he would roll someone in carpet and light them on fire. That's how you know he really loves you. So I'll make sure to ask him that tomorrow. Because um, I've actually, honestly, I've never heard him say that at all so i guess he never loved any of us over at anglico but whatever nah um thanks uh thanks carson for shooting that in again that was at the uh jay kramer or excuse me uh former action guys podcast at gmail um email address and then the last thing is i am up on twitter uh, twitter former action guys number four mer action guys on twitter so check all that stuff out help support me out i'm a poor college student and uh this is this is my livelihood and i'm here to entertain you people so here we go uh next podcast vietnam veterans are starting they're not like world war ii veterans you know where they're dying away in mass but yeah every day you know you're not getting any younger well and is my memory going to be my memory is going to be pretty sharp about it because it was a very uh special time in my life oh yeah yeah i'm sure i think anytime anybody goes overseas it's like but it's not even that it was the flying yeah the flying was what was the uh the uh, exciting part from the beginning yeah because training was no uh, simple easy thing 
mm-hmm. as a Marine or a Navy pilot. You know, the Air Force, candy. But Navy Marine, no. Yeah. 20 months. 20 months of, of just getting your ass kicked by instructors. Yep. <laughs> Basically, that's it. Grounds From ground school to up in the air to... Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, what year did you... Um... What year did you, where are you from originally? Los Angeles. Okay. West Los Angeles. And uh, when did you decide to join the military? Well, what was, I, so at your, in your time, the draft was still going on. The draft was still going on, but as a uh, pre-pilot, you know, they would come, they came to my uh, college and said, uh, be a naval aviator. And uh, out of the 16,000 students at Pierce College. Uh, there were only two of us that went uh, after school. They, they had an announcement at the 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning uh, break, and all the students heard it. Mm-hmm. Um, we, there were two of us, and the other guy left almost immediately after the, oh, the really? show started. Yeah. So there was just me and this captain, Marine captain, all dressed in his blues, <clears throat> and said uh, showed showed of course the blue angels and um flying along he said be a naval marine aviator so a marine aviator i never thought about but i always loved the idea of flying when i was a kid and built hundreds of uh, model airplanes from balsa wood to i had rc mm-hmm. air rc stuff that was just coming out yeah those was, are fun and I was like 15, 16. Anyway, but I never flew a plane. What were the uh, Blue Angels flying back then? Uh, F-11s. F-11s. So was that still a prop plane? No. No? No. no okay. No, I'm, no, not, I'm not 100% familiar with all F-11s the aircraft, so. were, uh, it was a uh, supersonic oh, aircraft. Okay. But it had guns and it was, uh, it was a fighter that was just, I believe, just after Korea. Okay. Or just during, it was developed during Korea. Um, first aircraft with afterburner. Hmm. Um, it was a cool aircraft to fly. Very. Yeah. It was. It, we flew it in training too. Okay. That was our last aircraft to fly uh, the F eleven in gunnery. We would do gunnery and down in Texas, Beeville, Texas. So how was? Um, so you got recruited out of college. Got recruited. I. He said, "Well, if you want to take the test, go to Long Beach." And I went to Long Beach. Uh, Took the test, I guess passed. Um, there was a, it was an academic and an aerial type of testing, <clears throat> and uh, got my orders in. Uh, was it uh, March of '67, and uh, was in Pensacola on September fourth, nineteen sixty-seven. Class class thirty-three sixty-three. Out of uh, out of Pensacola or in, out of in Pensacola okay. was the uh, that was the class. Okay, they and, have a class every week. Yeah, and then at what point and did you find out you were going to be flying jets? Because or at that time, could you go in for jets specifically? No, no, it was a matter of your uh, your well, it was your OQR, which is your officer quality jacket or report, and your flying record your, uh, that they had. We, we never saw that. Um, so 
in the beginning after ground school at Pensacola of 16 weeks, then you go to Softly. We went to Softly Base, which was right near Pensacola. Mm -hmm. And that's where you do primary uh, training in a T-34 Mentor, which is a beach craft. Okay. And uh, you solo after 13 flights, and uh, you do 10 or 15 more flights after that. And then you're selected for either props or jets. So the story was pretty interesting. Uh, <clears throat> my class of... Uh, it ended up only eight Marines in my class. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the commanding officer of, the, of Softly came to us and said, well, sorry, all the Marine uh, students are going props this week. So everyone was going props. And I was a little disappointed. Yeah. I, that wasn't why I went in. They showed the Blue Angels <laughs> at my college. <laughs> I want to be a damn Blue Angel. Yeah. And so uh, that same day, I went up to the commanding officer of the base and tap, tap, tap on his door and said, uh, and he said, enter. So I stood at attention in front of him and got, went to parade rest. <coughs> and he asked me, what, um, what do you want? And I said, I want to go jets, sir. All my class is going props. And he looked at me, he said, is that right? You, you want to go Jets? Uh, and he thought for a minute and he uh, went out of the room and got my OQR and my flight jacket, the training, and um, studied it for about oh, 10 or 15 minutes before he came back in the room. And he looked at me and he said, um, well, we don't have any spots for you this week. But if you don't mind waiting a week, you could go to Meridian the following week. And I said, yes, sir. <laughs> I, I would love that. So, you know, sometimes you got to make your own destiny. You, you, I had to say something. It was, you know, very scary for a cadet because I was a cadet. Uh, the AOCs, the officer candidates, were in a different place. And us uh, Marine, and the, the the officer candidates were Marines and Navy. Um, so you didn't go through a traditional OCS then? No. Okay. No, just two years of, uh, I had 66 units. You had to have a 2.7 or better. And if you got that, or 2.5, 2.7, something like that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> then you're eligible. Okay. So as to become a Marine uh, cadet. And so the Marine cadets and the officers all went through the same exact program. But at the end of when they pin the wings on you, they also pin brown bars on you. So you become a second lieutenant. Oh, uh, okay. Interesting. So after you got done with your, um, or you got chose, you got chosen to go fly jets, right? And we you were probably Mar obviously super pumped about that. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> they, and they do it of all places in Meridian, Mississippi, um, at an, at the airbase there, the uh, Marine Corps, or it's a Naval Auxiliary Air Station there. Okay. And then uh, after that, uh, four, I think it was four months 
of flying the T2 Alpha. Uh, then you go, that was primary jet training. Then you go to advanced jet training down in Beeville, Texas. That's where I went. And uh, you fly for another six months where you, uh, oh, but also in the T2 Alpha, when you, after Meridian, there's a quick stint where you do FCO, uh, what is it, FCOLs? Um, What's that stand for? Where a field carrier, an FCLPs, I'm sorry, field carrier landing practice. And you oh, okay. do that in Pensacola for uh, a month. And you do, you fly probably every day to every other day, and you're doing uh, in the pattern, and you're doing uh, <clears throat> just what it says, you know, field carrier ops. You're not over the uh, carrier, but you do. And then you, uh, Carrier call in the T two. I didn't go through that. Okay. So you, you start. Ca- is that so? When you say field carrier ops, you mean like so? We we have over on Camp Pendleton. There's a pad. Uh, they call it the LHD pad, uh-huh. and it's the size of an LHD landing. So it's so pilots can carrier pilots come in, hit that a few times, and practice and get their quals there, and then they go hit the actual uh, uh, boat. Oh. So is that is that what you're talking about as well? Like it, it's very land? it's very similar. Okay. You know, because so they have. Where, where are you doing the field carrier practice? They have a, um, just like on a carrier. And so they have a wire. Mm-hmm. They have three wires. I think the carrier has five, but I I think we had three wires. And you're landing with the ball, you know, in the mirror or the Fresnel lens, either one. Sends a, a glide slope. What's a Fresnel lens? The Fresnel lens is just a... Uh, it's a different it's an angled lens with a light and you you can tell when you're in the middle because the light is green and then i think it goes white and then red okay and uh whereas in the meatball with the with the mirror uh it's just shining a mirror up at i think it's three degrees glide slope and you just follow that glide slope down okay and so it's basically telling you you're at the correct angle as you're coming in. Angle of attack. Okay. Well, and your angle of attack is in your aircraft. But mm-hmm. generally when you're, there's a dark line on your angle of attack indicator. And when your arrow is at that line, you're at the proper angle of attack, which you try to keep it in that area while you're flying. And you're flying, so your eyeballs are moving a mile a minute. Oh yeah, I'm uh, sure. Between gauges and between and gauges up. and the mirror and your angle of attack indicator and your power and your you're just you're just all hands do you think hands that, and brain and eyes. Do you think that was a a good like prerequisite training before you did an actual landing on a carrier? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. You think yeah. that set you up pretty well? It set it set us up uh um because even though when we were at Meridian going through primary training, uh-huh. you landed with the mirror every every landing. Okay. So it wasn't new to you. You know, every flight in Meridian was... So what do you mean when you say you land with the mirror? Uh, that, that means that uh, the mirror is throwing a beam up at that three-degree angle. So when you come around, when you come around in the pattern, yeah. a landing pattern, uh-huh. you intercept that beam of light that's so, coming up. So you're just looking for a ground base, like mirror to flash in the eyes, get yeah. some light in your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're just, well, it doesn't flash in your eyes. It's just, it's, 
a ball of light yeah. that is in the center of a mirror, right? Uh-huh. So it's sending up a beam up in the air. Yeah. Okay. But that beam also goes back to the mirror and then reflects back to in, in uh, the light. The uh-huh. light goes from the ground to the mirror up to you. Yeah. So if you're below the slope, you're going to see that mirror low. Interesting. That's you're interesting. Gonna, yeah, you're going to see the ball go low. It, huh. And what you do is you have red lights yeah. going out from the mirror, uh-huh. both sides, red or green lights. Or, anyway, uh, no, no, they're probably green. I guess the red ones you don't ever want to see. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> they're at the bottom or top of the mirror. Um, but the so you have these green lights going out to the side, and that ball you want that mirror that ball wants to be right in line with those green lights. Huh. And when it is. And you're you're following that glide slope, and as long as the ball stays in the middle, you're right on target with the uh, number three wire. They say. So when you hit, like when you hit an actual carrier, because you're looking at all these other things. Yeah. Do you even sometimes? Does it surprise you actually when you when you hit? Because you're lo- maybe not actually looking at. Oh right. Well, the mirror. As soon as you, in that second, when the ball goes out to the right side. You're hitting the deck. Yeah. It it it's uh, you know just a split second later, you're hitting the deck. Okay. And if you and if you're lucky and your hook stays pinned to the deck and you're in the right spot, you're gonna catch one of those wires. Did you have any? Uh, did you ever have any like interesting carrier landings that you want to talk about? Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know if anybody remembers the victory at sea, uh, World War Two. Things where a, a prop plane would hit the deck and didn't quite have enough power, uh, either taking off or landing, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you lose sight of the aircraft, and then you see it come back up, and it made its uh, its its uh, flight back in the air yeah, without yeah. hitting the water. Well, that was me landing the F nine. This was an advanced training. When you're flying the F-9, which is a real doggy aircraft, yeah, um, it's not an axial flow jet engine. It's what they call a centrifugal flow engine, and it uh, it doesn't respond very well. Mm-hmm. So you know, as soon as you hit the deck of the aircraft and you don't catch a wire, um, you slow down enough to where you immediately go to 100%. But that engine... By the t- you're you're sinking. I was sinking past the deck. I was so lucky I didn't hit the water and talk to some people on the deck. They said they thought for sure I was a dead cookie. Oh, really? Yeah. And I had to go a little bit high on the angle of attack when I knew I was about. Ugh. That was a scary moment. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. And 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 when we were landing the F nine, this is advanced training. You carrier uh-huh. call on the F nine. <clears throat> our squadron we're carrier calling right uh-huh. so we're novices at this yeah. and uh, we're a hundred miles 150 miles out in the Atlantic in 10 foot seas oh my god and they have us students landing on the deck of the uh, Essex really um, yeah jeez that's super dangerous super L how many guys lost their, had blowouts of their tires, mm. lost a landing gear, and still took off. 
and was stuck with one landing gear. Oh, man. Right? So we had uh, NAS Mayport. We had uh, Jacksonville. We had two other airfields completely at a standstill from disabled aircraft taking the cable. Uh, at the end of every Navy, Navy Marine uh, uh, bay, uh, landing strip, you have uh, a wire mm-hmm. um, with anchor chain connected to it. So if you need to land your aircraft because there's an issue or problem, yeah. we had the option of dropping our hook and catching the wire, catching the wire on a land-based airfield. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that would. Uh, so that was a scary moment. The T two was a wonderful aircraft to fly as a beginning primary jet training because it had straight wings. Okay. You know, like the F one hundred four. If anybody remembers the little fancy F one hundred four Starfighter from the Air Force, uh, it was the prettiest <laughs> airplane because it had these short little stubby horizontal, you know, horizontal wings that were straight out. It was a very pretty aircraft. So you during this time, I mean, you're going through this training, and you know Vietnam is happening. I mean, that's it's well. It was, what, year, what year was this? Sixty seven. Yeah, sixty. No, no, this was sixty three. Was when I started training. Okay. Um, so this was the so I guess it hadn't really. I was in sixty five. Is when I got my wings. In okay. May of sixty five. In sixty five, there was definitely starting to become more of a mainstream. Oh yes. Yes, yes, yes. So what was on your mind is like, okay, like I'm going to finish here and I'm actually going to go do what I've been training to do. Were you excited about that or was it more? Um, it was, uh, I think everybody had their own feelings in the squadron mm-hmm. uh, when we got to El Toro. But uh, What squadron were you with? Uh, VMFA 122 in uh, El Toro. What's their? VMFA is fixed wing marine fighter attack. Okay. It was the Phantom was the first aircraft to receive that nomenclature now vmfa is a standard marine squadron what was your guys uh call sign uh we were delta charlie okay um so what was it like when you got into the phantom for the first time knowing that okay i'm i'm starting to practice with my actual aircraft that i'm gonna go down range and fight with right well so there was some on the ground uh uh, what do you call those trainers? Mm-hmm. You're, the simulators. You're, the simulators. You're you're in those a little bit, you know, just mostly for emergency procedures. Okay. Um, but you, it, it is an actual F four cockpit, so yeah, they're amazing. You you get what's you you're learning about the cockpit way before you get in the aircraft, of course. Yeah, you're learning all the buttonology, where the switches are at. Yeah, where everything Where your is. scans should be. Yeah, well, you got to transfer fuel. you got all the... the uh, now, the advantage that you had as a pilot in the Phantom is that you had a Rio in the back seat. Okay. And the Rio is a radar intercept officer. So he also took care of, usually, the radio communications. Um, so... who. <laughs> We were sort of primo versus the A4 drivers and the F8 drivers. Uh, they didn't have uh, a tandem seat. It was just single seat. So the pilots had to do all the dirty work. As yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just put that on him and you're just flying around. Yeah. That's the, that's the gig to have, I guess, right? So, so now the difference in the Phantoms, now there's a difference. 
the Navy and Marine Corps were pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. There was the uh, F-4B, the F-4 Bravo. But the uh, Air Force had the F-4 Charlies. Now, the F-4 Charlies were different because they had controls in the back seat. Okay. So when you were an, an Air Force F-4 pilot, um, you didn't just take command of your aircraft. When uh, Your first flight would be as a, uh, I don't know, I wasn't in the Air Force. But yeah. it had dual controls, and from what I understood, you didn't really get to fly f- front seat until you were a captain. But okay. I don't know if that was... So you BS so, or not? So you worked your way up as a Rio or as a rear guy? No, yeah, as a rear guy in the Air Force because they were both pilots. Yeah, they weren't Rios in the Air Force. Yeah, okay, they were two pilots. But in the uh, Marine Corps, our first flight was in the front seat. We had total controls. There wasn't a pilot. Well, I did have a pilot in the back seat on your first flight, um, but he couldn't help out if no, he, he couldn't help out, <laughs> and it. I was the newbie in the squadron. Uh, I was uh, the first. My first number was Delta Charlie two six. Okay. And um, so the XO gets in the back seat of my flight, my first flight, and my first flight uh, happens to be a deployment to Yuma, Arizona, for uh, gunnery range, gunnery and bombing. the Phantom didn't have real gunnery because it didn't have onboard guns. Oh, okay. So they strap like a pod on that. Yes. You could fire from. They would put a pod in the center line, and okay. that was pretty wild. Similar and, with the Harrier in Vietnam, um, with that twenty millimeter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it's got to be while you're riding it, riding Whoa. that gun. Whoa! You know, I don't know how many rounds it had in there. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, but there was a lot, um, and uh, it wasn't standard armament in the uh, in Vietnam. Okay, uh, it was standard it, for if you carried napalm. Often you would carry a uh, pod in the middle, because if the napalm didn't go off, you'd shoot your twenty millimeter, which had some tracers in it, mm-hmm. which would light off the uh, okay. uh, napalm if if you did it right. Nice. And, um, but, uh, so here we are taking off of El Toro, my first solo flight. I get up about a thousand feet from El Toro with not a full load of fuel because we're just going to Yuma. Mm -hmm. And I get generator warning light. Well, if you had... Uh, the disconnect uh, composite shaft CSD on your aircraft you could you didn't have to shut down your engine but if you did not have CSD you're required to shut down your engine or you had the possibility of a fire what is CSD? composite shaft disconnect which would when the generator goes offline Mm-hmm. It automatically disconnects the generator from your oh, okay. engine. Oh, okay. So your your generator wouldn't be turning if the windings were blown up inside of it. Yeah. Cause a fire from friction and that. Well, of course, my engine did not have CSD. <laughs> <laughs> and here I am, my uh, solo flight, 
Um, and um, the the uh, the executive officer, the first words out of his mouth was, "Why me?" <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's hilarious. That's yeah. So the procedure is, I had to follow procedures. So as soon as I saw that red light, you know, uh, generator is out. Mm-hmm. And I noted, looked at my engine and did not have CS. I said, sorry, Major, but there's no CSD. He said, well, you know the procedure. So I had to shut down the engine. And here we are with the, we weren't full with fuel. We didn't have, I didn't have the wing tanks uh-huh. full of fuel, but my entire center line was full, which is 13,500 pounds of fuel. Okay. And um, uh, I did have the wings. So my wings had fuel. So there's three fuel tanks, mm-hmm. center line, wings, and drop tanks. Oh, my drop tanks were empty, but my wings still had fuel in them. Well, you can't land with fuel in your wings. So here I am over good old, the good old USA um, dumping all the fuel in my wings. Um, which is unfortunately standard SOP. Yeah. So I'm coming into uh, a Naval Auxiliary Air Station. Uh, uh, what's the valley over there in Brawley? Uh, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Uh, the desert. There was a Naval Auxiliary Air Station okay. there. I can't remember the name. So here we're coming in. Fortunately, they had a, an 11,000 foot runway there. And um, I landed. And you're just gliding this whole time? Oh, no, no. I'm, I'm with one engine. Oh, with, okay. With up at 95%, basically, to stay airborne. Oh, okay. And dumping fuel and f- flying into this uh, naval station. And fortunately, here I am, the pilot. So the guy in the back seat has to do all the radio stuff. So he called... Uh, the tower over there and uh, told said we had an emergency we need an immediate straight in approach by that time my fuel was dumped and um, I land and of course it's the first time so in order to slow the F4 down when you're landing it has a parachute in the back okay um, that you Engage as soon as you touch down, you lift up on the parachute handle and it locks in place. Well, they never told me that it locks in place, <laughs> <laughs> right? That's supposed to be your experience, okay? So I lift up on the handle, it didn't lock in place. I let go of the handle, and the parachute immediately disengaged from the aircraft. So I'm landing at, uh, you know, the normal speed, except I had my my, uh, main fuel tank pretty full. So I ended up landing at about 122 knots, where normal landing was around 112. Um, So I'm 10 knots fast in landing and no parachute. And um, you don't want to stand on the brakes. I'm not that kind of a driver, whether it be jets or cars. Yeah. I, I don't drive anymore, of course. But so uh, 
I had still had plenty of runway um, and landed safely. And the major said, "Good job." And, uh, you know, I mean, that's a good way to introduce yourself to the unit. You know, <laughs> they're like, "Well, he can make it through a stressful situation." Yeah, you know, I was through the emergency thing. That's pretty wild. On though. your first flight. Yeah, no, that's it was, that was what fun. luck, huh? <laughs> yeah. So then we, uh, and so my second flight uh, was actually instead of just, you know, getting used to the aircraft. Now, I'm bombing, you okay. know, with these little uh, J-25s. They're little practice, yeah, practice bombs that you do at the in the Chocolate Mountains. Yep. Uh, above Yuma. And, I spent some time up there at the OP. Yeah, yeah, did you? Yeah. Yeah, I did too as a uh, FAC. Yeah, they come out there as the, what are those? Did uh, they do live ordinance with you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Great great spot out there. Yeah. And, uh, there's a few OPs. There's, I, one of my, I think one of my best controls or one of my most, like, fun controls, because it was all live, was, because you didn't always, you don't always get the live bombs. You always, no. A lot of times you get the, like you said, the 25 pound. Like, yeah, yeah training bomb mark tw- mark 25 yeah. Yeah, yeah um yeah i don't remember what it what it was actually called but it was they a, were uh, different marks something yeah. yeah um but yeah i had like f-18s come in it was combined combined sequential f-18s come in and drop simo yeah gb38 which is a 500 pound jdam yeah. gps guide so two of those simultaneously oh yeah and then while they're doing that we're up on the hill and then behind me over my right shoulder i have two cobra circling so as soon as those bombs hit the cobras pop up and they start shooting rockets and guns like 800 meters in front of us and they pull off and by the time they pull off the f-18s have turned back around and they come in for gun sure so it was i love going out there oh that was wild yeah it's a great spot well i had i had an experience out there as in fact training yeah uh, which is before you know i went uh it was at el toro uh go out there and you know that was a big deal to because uh, only marine pilots are forward air controllers for marine pilots. Yeah. Okay. So that was your second tour often in Vietnam. Okay. Yeah. And I was trained for it and getting ready to go for it right before I got shot down. Yeah. Uh, right out, I was scheduled uh, one to two weeks after. Oh, really? Yeah. Which I'm very glad I got shot down in a certain sense <laughs> because I. Uh, me on the ground, you know, with an M16, uh, I don't think so. You're like, that's not that's not your life, huh? No, it was not my life. You're a jet guy. And too many of them got... Uh, yeah. Uh, I can't talk about that yet. Yeah. Uh, well, let's get into... So So now you know, what kind of specific training did you have before you went to Vietnam? Yeah, I, but I was going to say one thing about my forward air controller training. Oh, go ahead. Um, so we when we were at the OP, we were sitting outside the uh, uh, sand... Uh, sandbag mm-hmm. OP. Yeah. Um, and two of us were sitting right uh, right next to each other. And it's about, uh, what would you say the OP is? Maybe 30 feet square? Or maybe. It depends on which one 20, you're at. Yeah. And, and, and there's an opening. And, and uh, I was on a, like a 10-foot section in the front there watching the 500-pound bombs go off, right? Mm-hmm. After the bomb went off, about two seconds later comes the smoking piece of a one pound hunk of metal that hits the sandbag about three feet to the left of my buddy. Oh, man. And we very quick 
quickly turned around and got behind those sandbags. Yeah. That was a, another scary moment. But those are the kind of accidents and things that happened. Just just being on the OP, yeah. And, and the, the OP was how post. far, would you say, uh, a mile? A it, half a mile? A mile? I don't know. Half I don't know mile? which one you were on, but it, yeah, it could be. I think now... It, it, it differs. Half a I, mile. I was at least a half a mile. I want to say the closest one that we do now is it, yeah. it's called Yodaville in Yuma. And I think you can do 500 meters. Is this as close as? You, you can? Yeah. Up to, not not on bombs. Not, mm, I, I, I don't know. You can get kind of close. I think with bombs, you have to stay at least 1,000 meters out. I think that's the. Which uh, is almost a mile. Uh, yeah. But, uh, Just uh, yeah. 1,600. But close calls yeah. on the OP, that's. I've had a few. I've had. I was with Second uh, Battalion, Tenth Marines, went around landing on right next to our OP on OP five. I was oh, fifty meters boy. from a one five five. Oh, a one five five. Yeah. Oh, it, you're kidding. Yeah, it was in uh, November or December of two thousand nine. It was the check round too. It was the first round that was supposed to be like oh, that's the safe one. <laughs> and uh, we're sitting there, and it was my first time going to the field because I was a lap mover. I changed over from being a mechanic to being a forward observer. Uh-huh. And it was my first time being going to the field with 10th marines or with 210 and i was in the fire support coordination center tent and you know had all the radios and stuff like that and we had the op right outside the tent there was the metal tower and then the uh impact area is right there in front of you and uh or it's a couple it's like 200 meters away yeah and then beyond that is where you strike and then um I just remember hearing shot target number over the radio and i looked over my buddy i was like hey you want to go out there and watch and he's like ah it's cool now nah, I'm just going to sit here, and I'm like, all right. And I was like, yeah, I'll just sit here, whatever. And I just hear, boom. And I'm like, damn, that's a <laughs> lot louder out here by the impact area, you know? Because this is my first time ever yeah, that's going loud. out there. And he was like, that was too loud. And then I hear my, my gunny at the time, Gunnery Sergeant Klein, he's like, trick fire. He's this country dude. He's like, yeah. trick fire, trick fire. We were all like getting on the radio. He was like, trick fire, trick fire, trick fire. We're like, what the fuck happened? Yeah. Yeah. yeah they put in... Uh, I think they said they put in half the charge. Half the charge, yeah, sure. So, That's yeah, it's scary. sketchy on the uh, OP. There's, I've had a few close calls like that. Yeah, but that hot smoking piece of steel, <clears throat> man. That, uh, yeah, that yeah. was that was a, a death right there for us. That we, Gives you an appreciation for, yeah, it can, how uh, far that stuff can go. Too. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. <clears throat> um, give me just one second. I think my power cord might have come out. You know, no, you could. That's the point of it. That's the. That's the beauty of having the podcast is that it's, you can talk. So my last one, I was telling you, I was uh, interviewing the Sergeant Major. Sergeant Major. Three and a half hours we talked. And that wasn't even his entire career. And that's why we're going to meet again in two days to sit down and and go over. um, That's fine. It's great. Because especially for guys that are out, (laughs) you know, someone like you, I mean, when's the last time you were around Marines? And well, just, I'm just, no, yeah, no, around uh, actual uh, in, uh, yeah. And sat down and had like a long conversation. Oh, nobody. You know, it's just, it's it, if you're not around it, if you don't put yourself around well, it. Well, I then, have my buddies. Yeah. You still in contact with a lot of dudes? Uh, uh, there's a, probably about uh, emailing. There's probably about 10 or 12 yeah. of us. Um, but close close buddies well real close there's just three three of us because we were a three-man class at, uh, at beville texas okay al john and me and myself um and we're close yeah but 
then there are about eight or ten other guys that uh, were emailing buddies. You know, that's good. You keep in contact. Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's how a lot of people use social media now that were military. Like, yeah, well, most of my Facebook is reaching out to other guys that are in. Well, and especially as pilots. Yeah. You know, the Here, one yeah. beautiful, well, we're all equal. Mm-hmm. None of us are uh, separated by anything, okay. whether it be education or what we're doing or how flaky we are now or yeah. how whatever. Well, you'll it, forever have that shared experience. Yeah. And we all did that same thing. And it's, I mean, similar, you know. Yeah, and you, I mean, you just you took a step and you did something that very few, very few people do. Very few people join the military. How? What would you say? How many people? How many people were volunteering to join the military in the mid '60s? Because the war was going on. Yeah, was there sir, a pretty good amount, or was it mostly draftees? I would say mostly draftees. Okay, uh, but there were but there were certain positions such as pilots. Um, you know, where there needed to be a little education, a little bit of testing before you went in even. Could you be drafted to be a pilot? No. No. No? Okay. But there were guys who were uh, grunts who then got into the Air Corps. Yeah. See, some of the cadets, that's that was where the original cadet came from. Okay. Was the field. So we had, um, we still have guys that do that. They'll come over. Most of them go through like the MESEP program is what it's called. I got a few buddies uh-huh. where you're like an enlisted guy and you apply to join the officer corps. And if you go, you know, your package gets selected, you go to OCS and then you finish OCS. And then if you're not already done with school, they pay you to go to college. So they pay you for the get your next, sure. you know, whatever. Sure. And that during that whole time, you're, you're still an enlisted person. Then as soon as you graduate from college, you pin on, go to TBS. That's great. And then... Go on to be, you know, a Marine Corps officer. I got a few buddies in the process. One, th- I think three right now that are in college, that are all MESEP guys that went and did that. Well, so. I think they found that uh, flying wise, um, <clears throat> that the cadets, even though we were just little two year guys, but that the Marine cadets, very weirdly, outperformed um, the AOCs, okay. which were just sort of pretty boys, as we call mm-hmm. them. Um, well, just guess this. In my pre-flight class, which was at Pensacola, uh-huh. um, there were 84 people in it. Uh, there were uh, 14 or 16 Marines, mm-hmm. and the rest were Navy. Uh, or I shouldn't say that. There were 14 cadets, uh, Marine cadets. And I think there were about 12 or 14 Navy cadets. Okay. And the rest were AOCs. So here we were a class of 84. And here I am just a lowly Marine cadet, right? And when it came to being in pre-flight and going through ground school, uh, I happened to be a physics, physics major when I was in college. Oh, wow. And and then my last semester was in agriculture. It's a little <laughs> funny, but so I went through uh, two years, four semesters of physics, calculus, chemistry, bio, everything. All that. Right? All that. And um, so when it came to the math and the aerodynamics and all the math, it was sort of not very much to me. And I was only one of four people out of the 84 people here. So... All the AOCs are looking at me. Here's this Marine cadet walking around with an academics badge. 
over your name badge. Oh, okay. And I was fortunate enough to have an academics badge like that. And so, uh, yeah, you're looked at a little bit differently. And mm. that was pretty cool. So, yeah, well, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so back to what we were talking about before I had to, I had to get the power cord before yeah. my computer died. Um, what kind of, what kind of um, direct training or what kind of training did you have that came directly from what was going on in Vietnam? Like, hey, you guys are going to Vietnam. Here's what we're going to do to prep you to go over there. Because, you know, then there was more air-to-air fights, I assume. And just this is my assumption is that you guys practiced, obviously, close air support. Probably put in a lot of close air support and then maybe some air-to-air work. You know, your general, did, did, it, did you feel like the training ramped up? Or did it seem like, all right, well, we're already training. Like, this is just, well, let's just go do it for real now. Okay, so the answer is pretty simple. Okay. Um, but a good question is... In order to be a Marine Phantom pilot, mm-hmm. and with that VMFA designation, so you need to qualify as a fighter pilot, you need to qualify as an attack pilot mm-hmm. in order to get your MOS, which I believe was a 7307. So in order to get your 7307 and even fly in the Fleet Marine Force, uh, you had to qualify. You had to pass your MOS. You had to do every designated hop yeah. you you know from and that's uh, still the same thing that's i'm sure that's still the same thing so we had the gunnery the night in flight refueling the flying mach 2 which wasn't in the syllabus yeah uh, your tnr requirements it's just all of that training and readiness yeah. requirements yeah. Or whatever it's and so we were uh we fired real missiles in the pacific missile range all the way to because so you had to be air to air. What um, would you fire missiles at air to air? Um, in at the Pacific Missile Range, out they over like the, drones or out over the ocean, out of uh, Point Magoo, out of. But what, what were you? What were you shooting at? Um, actually, um, there were uh, drones. There were other. There were real aircraft that they would. Uh, they still they were able to do uh, radio controlled regular size aircraft. Oh, really? Yeah. Regular size aircraft. Regular, and, and take them off and land them back in the 60s. That's crazy. Yeah. And um, we we would fire uh, real missiles, but uh, I think that you would know whether you had a hit or not mm-hmm. because you don't even need to hit the other aircraft. That's sort of a misnomer. You just the missile just has to get close enough to where it would fire the warhead, and then it blows all the stuff. It blows all that shit everywhere. Right? Yeah, you know what? It's a really good video of that is on um, is a oh, behind enemy lines that movie where oh. they get shot down. It's supposed to. Oh yes, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. it's supposed. To, I think it's. I the, think I may have seen it, but that, it may probably not. It's it's not bad, and it shows the missile. It actually shows him get shot down by the missile, and it shows the missile get close to his aircraft, and then. The warhead explode and shoot the shrapnel into the motor and stuff like that. To do. That's what happens. And I think that's a, you're right. I think that's something that people don't really realize is they don't. It doesn't have to it hit the hit aircraft. It, yeah, an impact. Uh, it could. It could hit it. Yeah. But uh, more often than not, it just gets <clears throat> close enough because the radar is only good for so many feet. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and the weapon system is able to tell as the Doppler effect of. It gets close, 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 and the one tick that it says it's getting further away, 
it goes off. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. So it'll go off. if It may not kill them, though. Yeah. If it's going away. It depends where it is in relation to the aircraft. Yeah. It's shooting down. So... Um, so like I said before, now you're getting ready for, to go to Vietnam. What was, what were the reports coming back that okay, for so other we, pilots that you were getting? Like, but we were just qualified in everything. You know, we did like we said, we went uh-huh. to Yuma and did uh, bombing. We did. Uh, there wasn't much gunnery because the uh, pods, like you were talking about before, the yeah. pods are just shoot right. You'd see where, pretty much where they're going. Yeah, and you could regulate your aircraft a little bit. Uh, but you're in a, a, a slow, a slight dive. You're in a 10-degree dive. Okay. So you're not uh, like a 30-degree bombing stuff. You're doing like with uh, snake eyes. Uh, snake eye bombs are the ones where the uh, the metal sort of... The high drag fin. The, yeah, the, the drag fins come out and slow it down so it doesn't blow your aircraft up in the process of off, the yeah. target. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so what year was this and what year were you what year did you go to Vietnam so I went there in uh, October of 66 okay yep what was that like getting uh, did you bring your own jets over or did no. they have some there for no you? I just joined a squadron VMFA 542 okay what was what was and your guys' call sign there their call sign no, I, was, uh, I was whiskey helo 22 whiskey helo 22 alright um, so you got there you said in October of 67? 66. 66? Okay. Yep. Well, how was it, how was like the uh, the ground war and stuff then, like what you were supporting and what did you, what what was your squadron's main taskings? Um, gosh. Um, we did everything. Um, close air support, direct air support, um, TPQ bombing. What does that stand for? Uh, TPQ stands for the, the nomenclature of a radar site. Okay. It's a portable radar site that the uh, ground uh, uses to uh, pick targets, ground targets. Okay. And um, so they have their ground targets on a map. And basically the map is superimposed on a screen, which then superimposes your position as you're entering the target area mm-hmm. at 20,000 feet, yeah. fully loaded with 500-pound bombs, mm-hmm. which was fun. Yeah, I bet. Uh, yeah, at 4 in the morning or 3 in the morning or 2 in the morning because it was all H&I fire, yeah. which is harassment and interdiction. Okay. Um, what did you most enjoy? Which kind of mission did you most enjoy doing? Well, of for me, it was, of course, the close air support, which is where you were often either flying off the hot pad or you were flying uh, a predetermined ground engagement mm-hmm. and you were the air support for the ground engagement. So that close air support was pretty uh, heavy duty. You know, you're sometimes dropping really close to your troops. Um, it was uh, that was the hairy part of yeah the danger close missions yeah I can't imagine so my experience you know ranges for and mostly like desert environments you know not there's some tree lines and stuff like that but not jungle 
yeah. like, dense jungle. So how often did you get tasked with dropping on like an actual jungle area and like close close air support? Yeah, was it mostly jungly or was it like was there a lot of open areas that you, you know, worked in? No, there or? were a lot of open areas. Okay. Oh yeah, lots of open areas because they grew rice there, right? Okay. So there were a lot of patties, yeah. um, a lot of patties that weren't being farmed. Uh, well, they were mostly being farmed, but there were patties that were dry, um, and it's you know. Who knows what the farming operation would be there, mm-hmm. and uh, that brings me back to my very first mission. So I guess I'll just interject when uh, when something had an effect on me. Um, my very first mission. Uh, there's there was so there was one thing though that wasn't really discussed much with the junior officers, the, the guys who were just entering the squadron in Nam. Um, you know, when you had a close air support mission, uh, there was usually smoke or there was something to indicate where they wanted you to drop. Yeah. Okay. And often there was an airborne fac mm-hmm. that would drop smoke on the target who often got shot down because he was, were, in, he was in a little Cessna. Yeah, the little Broncos. And- the poor guy, you know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was probably a 50-50 deal. If you had the luck, you That's made crazy. it through. 50-50? Uh, <laughs> pretty bad. Jeez. A lot of, a lot of guys. Anyway. Yeah. Um, that's okay when you had smoke on the target. But when you didn't have smoke on the target... Um, it was pretty difficult to tell uh, what was what, mm-hmm. you know, because you're going pretty fast. You don't want to get shot down. So you're not moving at 300 knots. You're moving around at 500 knots. Um, um, but uh, my first first mission, so they didn't explain very well what, what was going on, Uh it was just like, welcome to Vietnam. Welcome, yeah, welcome. So I, my first one was a division operation. So a division of jets is, or I think choppers too, is a four aircraft. Uh, yeah, it's still the same. You'll hear so, the Air Force call it a four ship, but yeah. Yeah, okay. So a division and a section. A section is two and a yep. division is four. And so um, my first flight, of course, was... The juniors in the squadron, I was number four man and flying, trying to fly wing number four man is the worst position to be in number one. Why and, is that? Uh, because everybody's flying off the leader. Uh-huh. So the number two guy is wiggling just a little bit. Uh, okay. Uh, the number three guy is wiggling a little bit more on the number two. And me, number four. You're is, just chasing him around. Yeah, so I... You learn that you have to try and not fly the guy's wing so much. Yeah. And one of the reasons on this flight, so here we are, flying a division of aircraft all loaded with ordnance, just loaded. Uh Um, Mostly 500-pound snake eyes. So uh, we go out and... 
uh, on a standard uh, pre uh, predetermined mission, mm -hmm. and there was no need for us. Where where were you guys based out of? Chulai. Okay. Which is fifty miles south of Da Nang. Okay. So you go out and then. So we go out. And there's no target, um, and so the leader, which was a major, said, "Okay, well, we got to find a target," and so. To dispose of the bombs uh, in the water, we were a little too far, and he started checking um, the you know Marines on the ground, and there was there were a couple agencies that he could contact for if there's any any uh, uh, sightings of enemy activity. Mm -hmm. Well. He finally got some BS, and we could hear what's going on over the radio. Uh, he got some BS that there was some activity on this peninsula sticking out into this rice paddy, that there was some activity on the peninsula. Well, I took that as total BS. Um, it was probably a guy with a 45, or I don't know what a uh, Viet Cong 45 would look like, but probably saw one... Her heard a shot, and here we're dropping four aircraft worth of <laughs> 12 500-pound bombs each. Oh, wow. So 48 500-pound bombs are going to go on this little peninsula right next to a, an active rice paddy. Uh, okay. Here I am, number four man, and the dumb leader. And, and when you are in formation to drop ordnance... You're not flying like the blue, blue angels. Yeah. You've got a little bit of distance. Yeah. You know, a little bit, a little bit more than that. So like you're maybe 100 feet off the guy's wing instead of 20 feet. Mm -hmm. So here they're all 100 feet off each other's wing. And I'm out in the rice paddy. Uh. I'm not over any peninsula. And so the... The leader didn't take something into consideration or couldn't see back, you know, to or didn't ask his Rio, hey, what does it look like back there? You know. So I'm out over the rice paddy. Nobody told me that you don't drop rice paddy. <laughs> I didn't know shit from Shinola, my first flight. Yeah. So I tucked it in. I could see that, uh, you know, I didn't want to drop in the middle of the damn thing. Uh -huh. I knew that. So they're coming over the, the uh, peninsula, and I tucked in as far as I could, and I'm still dropping in a part of the rice paddy. And so the, I, I still have these horror thoughts of dropping in this poor Vietnamese guy having his rice uh, growing, and I'm dropping in his paddy. Uh, I'm sure it disturbed it just a little. It's not good for the hearts and minds. Oh, God. <laughs> was that the first time you dropped that many bombs at once? Yes, of course. That was the first time I dropped anything. It was my first flight. No. How was... Uh, what, it it got, feel, what did it feel like in the aircraft to drop that much weight off at once? Yeah. Did you it, suddenly feel like you were in a sports car? Yeah, sort of. Uh, because you have a lot of drag. Yeah. Right? When yeah. you're flying with that much stuff. Um You've basically got the nose of nine 500-pound bombs. Mm -hmm. It doesn't sound like much, but anyway. Um, but when you drop, 
it's it's a noise that you don't forget. It's you know because they all they nothing drops at the same. Yeah, they're all a split second apart, huh. so that they don't hit each other. Well, they don't hit each other, but also that they uh, fall to where they're all getting their mass maximum effectiveness. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Oh. Man, that's. <laughs> Yeah. So that's, what was yeah. that like when you came back from your first flight? How how'd you feel? Well, You're like, all right. I was, oh, I felt all right until the leader said, <laughs> uh, we're not supposed to drop in the patty, Geller. And I said, I didn't have any choice. He said, well, then you shouldn't have dropped. Uh, now I know. <laughs> yeah, and now I know, but, you know, you're telling everybody to pickle their bombs. And I'm pickling, you know. Yeah, you're a new guy. You're not questioning shit. Right. Yeah. Oh, and you man. and you don't drop bombs on land in Vietnam unarmed mm-hmm. because they will dig them up, turn them in and use them. Yeah. Same thing in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. Um. So let's let's get let's move up to. I want to get to where you were shot down. Uh-huh. Um, but let's before there that. There were what other, kind of, yeah. There were other missions. What I know, well, we're kind of touch, oh. we're kind of crunched for time, yeah, and yeah. we're we're definitely going to do another. We got to do another podcast. I know yeah. you 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 get probably got tons of stories, and we live about a hundred yards away, so yeah, yeah. So yeah. we definitely got to sit down again. But okay, what kind of what kind of training had you had up to that point for like you know seer? I don't know if they called it seer then. Uh, that's uh, no, they didn't because they they no. formed that after Vietnam. It was the. Uh, uh, survive, evade, resist, escape. Yeah, um, which they did because we went to E and E school. Okay, um, up in Pickle Meadows, and anybody oh Pickle was, Meadows, yeah. anybody who was in the Marine Corps and knows Pickle Meadows knows that you want to stay as far away from that place. <laughs> That's the uh, for those that don't know. That's the Mountain Warfare Training Center. Yes, it is uh, in Bridgeport. It will humble you quickly because your base camp's at sixty five hundred feet. I think. I think it was eight thousand. Yeah, it's up there. So when we would go walk to Chow, you know, when you first get there, we're all huffing and puffing for breath. Yeah, you know, because it's just uh, well, sixty five hundred is Bridgeport, and then we go up, up the mountain, up from there where the main camp is. So what? How was that training, and then do you felt like it prepared you for your experience of like actually having to eject and stuff? Uh, well, you know, uh, fortunately, um, very fortunately, I wasn't on the ground long enough to use some of those uh, practices. Um, but I would have done my best um, to uh, uh, escape and evade. Yeah. However. From what I understand, um, from what they told me, uh, after I ejected and my plane went in, the whole mountain was on fire in this dried up bamboo. And so I probably would have been killed. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, If I wasn't picked up. Yeah. Ten minutes later. So let's talk about the mission that you were on at that time. What What was the mission of that flight? Uh, that was, I was off the hot pad out of Chulai. Uh, we were armed, uh, <clears throat> with, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, 
I think it was uh, six napalm and six 500-pound snake eyes. Okay. And um, off the... Uh, Off the hot pad, you know, you're you're sitting there and waiting in case you're called. Mm-hmm. Um, the hot pad isn't generally called unless there's definitely some ground incursion that um, was not planned on. Do you want to explain what a hot pad is? Um, yeah, so the hot pad at Chulai was where there were uh, two phantoms that were sitting there armed fueled, um, basically ready to go with the ground crew, um, uh, total, uh, you know, communications with ground forces. And uh, you're sitting there in the ready room at the hot pad because the hot pad was not right there where the squadron aircraft, where the squadron meets and Mm -hmm. you're... you're, uh, when you're in the ready room at the squadron, this is a ready room on the hot pad, which yeah. was a little hut type thing. And uh, you were there with your Rio and your uh, uh, your other guy. Uh, sometimes you're the leader. Sometimes you're the wingman. Yeah. You're just waiting on the call. I'm just waiting on the call. So, so what, we, what we call that now is strip alert. Same deal. Aircraft strip alert. Is, aircraft is loaded, ready to go. And... Yeah. As soon as they, the bell rings or yeah. whatever the signal is that they have, the pilots are usually in a shack like you like you experienced. This is in Afghanistan in my, uh-huh. from what I've been uh, from what I was around. Yeah, and yeah, they just run out. The aircraft's ready to go. Fire it up and then quick t- take off. Yeah. yeah, because that means the Marines are in trouble. Yeah, and uh, at the time they were um, mortaring Kaysan. So. I don't believe it was my mission that was the mission, I think, almost uh, 10 months later, which was the big uh, siege on Quezon, uh, I believe. I'm not really sure. but Was that the Easter offensive? You know, I, I really don't know. We'll have to look I into that. You have to look into it. Because yeah. I went in on uh, March 30th, 1967, I believe it was in September that the uh, what do you, the Tet Offensive. Okay. And I think that's when they... Uh, I don't know if they overran Quezon. I don't think they did, but it was... Uh, if you look at the Vietnam history, the movies, the things that were on TV, um, the siege on Quezon was a whole... Actually, yeah, I remember that. That's, it, was a, it was like a 100-day siege. It was... Unbelievable. Was, they were being attacked, and that's actually where, uh, like, one of the most famous Marines that were ever on TV and stuff was uh, uh, Arlie Ermey. Oh. He was an air wing guy at Quezon during that siege. Oh, was it? Yeah, during yeah. Vietnam. So, well, um, and so they were doing it all the time because Quezon was right next to the DMZ. Okay. And where they were mortaring from was in the DMZ. Mm-hmm. Well, the DMZ was. Notable for its smoke and haze and constant bombs and everything's going on in the DMZ because neither side artillery was always going off. Um, there was even after I was shot down, um, I could hear artillery going off hmm. wherever I was, you know, 
near Quezon and near wherever. Yeah. So, because the mortars probably were not far from Quezon, um, the actual base. Yeah. Um, I didn't even notice the base, actually. Uh, we were just, the mortars were on a different hill. Uh, no, I'm not sure how far from the base, but wherever, I'm not sure what size mortars they were using or whatever, the enemy. And um, it was extremely difficult to see the target, even with the smoke, because there was so much smoke and haze. So I had to lift up my visor. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason I had to lift up my visor is because the Marine Corps, I don't know about today, I think today the military treats the Marine Corps uh, maybe maybe like the Navy and Air Force. But back <laughs> when I was in it, uh, they were the dogs of the military. <laughs> yeah, we still get a lot of secondhand stuff. And it's all, it was all the uh, second, yeah, what you call yeah. it, second class stuff. The Air Force pilots' helmets were had a twofold visor, a clear visor and a dark green visor. The Marine helmets only had the dark green visor. So if you were in the area where we were up at the DMZ, you couldn't see shit. So you had to uh, lift up your visor. Okay. And so in doing that, Unfortunately, I exposed my face to the environment. And uh, so that's what caused my uh, severe blindness at, at the moment. So, But I didn't go into the hole getting... Were you attacking a target at the time? So what can you go yeah, into what right. actually happened? So uh, we were on our second or third third round uh, to go after the mortars that were mortaring Quezon. Mm-hmm. And um, the uh, <clears throat> I was the wingman and the leader went in, dropped his ordinance um, and uh, didn't silence the target. Um, it was so difficult to see where the target was until mm-hmm. you got close. And that's not usually a good thing when you're flying 500 knots. Yeah. So, um, um, I came in uh, the first time. We neither one of us got it. Um, they said, you know, target still active, and uh, uh, he went in again and didn't do it. And on my second uh, go around. Um, Here's one issue, is being in the DMZ, you're right next to North Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Well, when you're right next to North Vietnam, they have all the anti-aircraft. Yeah, they have a full spectrum of... Radar controlled, missiles, you name it, right? Mm -hmm. They could at nighttime just hoof it to near... Quezon, and that's why Quezon was attacked so much. So on my second go-around, I was coming around. I didn't feel anything hit the aircraft. Um, 
I was hit before that, not on the same flight, but two flights before that um, with a 50 caliber. Never felt it, never knew it, had no idea. Um, but um, the ground, the, uh, the, what do you call it, the paraloft mm -hmm. told me, hey, Geller, <laughs> you got hit by 50 caliber. Um, I guess you were down pretty low. Well, all of our missions were down low, yeah. except the TPQ bombing. Yeah. And the, the, uh, uh, the, uh, there's close air support and, um, deep air support. What was it? Deep air support? Uh, no, uh, uh, TAS. Um, anyway, where you were going after, I mentioned it before. I can't think straight. Um, when you're going after targets oh, okay. that are not um, tactical, tactical air, TA, uh, TAC. Okay. So when you're at um, tactical things, uh, very often, um, especially um, when they're uh, on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, but don't tell anybody I was in Laos. <laughs> mm. uh, of course, it's 50 years later. Is it 50 years later yet? Uh, I could now say, yes, 50 years later. I think, I think you're in the clear now. 2017. So, uh, um, yeah, Laos and uh, North Vietnam, a couple of missions in North Vietnam, um, uh, and where you did uh, really steep 45-degree dives. And... You actually uh, dropped at 10,000 feet mm -hmm. on 45-degree dives. With dumb bombs? Oh, I mean, uh, yeah, they're all dumb bombs, I guess, then. Well, well uh, the first laser yeah, guy, all dumb bombs. The first laser guy to bombs came out towards the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, no, we had all dumb bombs. Yeah. And I'm telling you, how you're supposed to ever find a target at 10,000 feet they give you maps mm -hmm. of what it's sort of supposed to look like. Um, <laughs> and some binos. But it's like, binos. it's like an absolute uh, flea in a haystack. You, yeah. you do not know where you're dropping. Um, and on this one mission up in the north, I remember I was the leader. And I just said, anybody, <laughs> anybody has any idea where the target is? Um, we didn't have any idea, so we just unloaded on this dark spot, you know. But you're in a 45-degree dive because they could fire at you, you know. So you were up there where you could evade most stuff. And um, even 20 millimeter at 10,000 feet, they're pretty uh, not very effective. They'd have to hit you. and But they did have radar stuff, so was, there was that possibility. Yeah. Um, and that's supposedly what got me was radar 37 millimeter. Okay. Um, and it was something we were supposed to do, but the leader, I said, why aren't you changing the pattern coming in from a different direction? Because that's what we were told in our briefing. Yeah. But he didn't do that. So obviously they had a bead on me. And uh, as a second guy through. That's something we would try. We try to... Um reinforced with our JTACs, the uh, Joint Terminal Attack Controllers, that uh -huh. you can run an attack on a target from one direction, 
maybe come in from that same direction for a reattack. Uh-huh. But then you need to start switching up and use different parts of the airspace because that's yeah. what happens. They're like, well, he keeps well, coming they from have this direction. Racket. Yeah, he keeps coming from this direction, so I'm just going to keep waiting until I see him again. Yeah. And um, so you're saying that's what happened with you. So yeah. you didn't realize you had been shot when it happened? Right. And I was in the dive, although I started noticing as I was getting near the target, I can't, I don't have much stick control. Uh-huh. Um, but you're in your 10 degree dive. You don't really, you're just making little movements at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're down low. We were down on the ground, you know, a 10 degree dive. You're, what do you, what? you're dropping snake eyes from, again. from about how high hundreds of feet or like 2000 hundreds. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, three to 500 feet. Oh, wow. So you're, yeah, you're real low. You're real low. You have no time to, Right, and that's why you're dropping snake eyes. So you were coming in, and you were dropping, but you, but we couldn't drop quite so low because, just because of the terrain. Yeah, but also because of the, uh, um, the the haze was. But you had to get down low with, with all the smoke. Yeah, it's a it was, fine line. It's a real fine line. So we were probably at 500 feet because you needed to be cognizant of the ground there. Um, up and down sort of thing. Were, but had you had you completed your bombing run and were you pulling up when yes. you realized you had been shot? Yes. That's obviously yes. the most dangerous time right. for an aircraft. Go no, because we were still heading down. Yeah. So um, at that point, I pulled off, tried to pull, got the stick in my lap. I had some response. If I didn't have any response, I'd be part of the mountain. But I had enough response to hit a tree on top of the ridge after the the hill that they were on and hit a tree which completely smashed my windshield and oh, caused man. my immediate blindness. Wow. Yeah. So you turned my eyes into pancakes basically. So you didn't you weren't able to eject or anything. Oh, I did. Immediately. So you hit the tree and then ejected? Right. Did it? Right. Did you eject, or did the plane eject you? No, did, did I it have any kind of. I had to. I ejected. I thought I was dead because everything went black. Yeah. Didn't think about my eye, but I. But then. Did you realize what had happened? Like I just hit something. Or I just hit. Oh, a tree I or? I realized I hit the tree. Yeah, and you, you could e- see it coming up to you. Oh, so you so it wasn't like it just out of nowhere. It, you saw it happening. I, I saw it one second. Oh man. Yeah, but you wouldn't want to. I couldn't let go of the stick because I had the stick in yeah. my lap. I couldn't let go of the stick. I would stick. I would have hit the mountain. Yeah, man. So, and did, do you think that you pulling the ejection was that out of instinct, or did you? Oh, yeah. It was, I knew it was the noise. They said that a napalm went off when I hit. Oh, uh, one, one of the ones you were carrying. Yeah, yeah. Because I hadn't dropped any nape. Did you? Do you remember punching out? Oh, yeah. What was that like? Um, it was just instantaneous. I mean, I guess you were blinded, too, so... I was I was blinded, so I knew that there was no no recourse. I couldn't land it. Yeah. Um, and I had no attitude. I couldn't see. It was, it how was far, impossible. How far away from the, the target that you were striking did you eject, eject from? I was probably 
where I ejected on the uh, other, just on the other side of the ridge. It was probably, probably a mile. Okay. I was probably a mile to Clo- mile and a half because I was going 500 knots. So close enough that it would have been a concern had you not been rescued quickly. Right, because they would have known. Now, whether they saw the parachute or the ejection seat, um, the the luck that I had was that um, I was probably angling slightly up and it was on the other side of the ridge. Okay. So they couldn't see me from the target okay. site. Uh, or they probably would have turned their motors mortars towards me yeah. for that instant. Yeah, they weren't they weren't fans of uh, aviators. Yeah. No, no. So you remember ejecting? Do you remember landing? Were you conscious through the entire thing? I don't. No, I was not conscious. I uh, I went in and out of consciousness. Uh, when I landed, I couldn't tell you whether I was conscious or not, but I think I was unconscious. Okay. And then, because uh, uh, I remember all of a sudden noticing all the shroud lines uh-huh. hanging down. And I said, I'll never get away from these shroud lines. Um, because I still had my torso harness and my whatever I had on me. And I said, because you wanted to keep whatever your uh, escape and evasion uh, packet, yeah, and um, and I do realize what caused my my scar under my chin, uh, or the bleeding under my chin was my Bowie knife that I had. Oh, really? When I ejected, um, or when I landed, it came up and hit me in the chin. Oh man, did it go through your chin? No. Oh, luckily. Yeah, it. Uh, but I had like four stitches or something under my chin. And when the helmet uh, blew off my face, uh, it's just, imagine ripping that uh, nylon strap that was there, right? It, a lot of force. Um, it ripped my earlobe. So my, uh, my earlobe was bloody. Uh, my uh, chin was bloody. My mouth was bloody. I tasted blood uh-huh. because those little pieces of skin that you have holding your lip to your gums in the front of your mouth, uh-huh. um, mine are gone. Oh, really? Yeah. And, oh, we're close to the time. Um, and I can give you a ride, so yeah, that's no problem. Let's, okay. let's, let's take, you got 10 more minutes? Uh, we'll, we'll kind of wrap this up? I think so. Okay. Think so. We'll wrap it up then. So um, were you, do you remember being rescued? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he got a DFC for rescuing me. Really? Uh, he was one of my buddies, too, that went through flight training. Oh, really? He went props. I went jets. Nice. He was flying a Chinook, uh, an H-46, big guy. And uh, uh, there was a, a story a little bit, you know, after I landed, mm-hmm. I had a radio uh, didn't realize because I was a little bit just trying to get away from my shroud lines, um, which, you know, are these nylon lines hanging down. 
that are holding up the parachute. Yeah. Uh, and they're extremely tough. You, if you get hooked on any part of your body, you're not. And I, and somehow I just slid right through the shroud lines. Um, uh, was, uh, of course, just getting, because I was afraid that some enemy would see me. I was in the DMZ. Yeah. Um, that some enemy would see me and start firing at the parachute. Okay. I was paranoid about that. Yeah. So my first thing was not to get on the radio. Uh, first thing was to get away from the parachute. Yeah. So I climbed as far as I could, and I said, from my childhood, I know you do not climb downhill because you don't know what's necessarily in front of you mm -hmm. from a memory I have of being a child of being on the top anyway that's another story and so I climbed uphill and got through some bamboo until I hit this wall of bamboo probably 50 feet from the chute and impenetrable not pen so then I started thinking oh hell I've got a radio so I called, uh, I called, and of course, I'm sure they were on, uh, on guard frequency. Yep. And uh, down pilot, down pilot, and uh, uh, I have no vision. So whoever is coming for me, if you are, you're going to have to find a way to get the uh, donut to me. And sure enough, uh, he uh, had to hit me with the donut, flying with the big, giant, twin-bladed H-46. So they dropped a hoist down to you. Uh, yeah, a, a donut on a cable. Yeah, yeah. And you don't just hang on to the, onto the donut. You uh, put it around your body. And because we know a good buddy who didn't and died. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Steve is. Hmm. Uh, there was a lot of deaths there in Vietnam, but of pilots. Yeah. Um, and uh, he got me into the bottom of the chopper, and I thought for sure, uh, as he was pulling me up, I thought for sure I was going to get shot. There was. No question in my mind. And uh, when they pulled me up, they, uh, you know, got me uh, uh, mostly undressed and just let, let me lay there on the bottom of the chopper. They start giving you medical attention at that time? Um, I don't think so because I was cognizant. Okay. Just blind. Okay. So, so this I'll, wasn't a dedicated medevac bird then? This was... No. Okay. No. So they just hauled me on board and just kept next to me. You know, one guy kept next to me. And then we landed at... Uh, first we landed at Quezon. Okay. Um, and so hopefully uh, my leader knocked out the... Uh, Orders yeah. on his next run, and 
anyway, um, uh, so there at Quezon, they said, we don't have anything here to be able to help you. And so they sent a, a medevac uh, from Dongha to Quezon. They choppered me over to Dongha, where the general came out to see me. And um, now remember, my face was bloody. Yeah. From the my chin, my mouth, and my ear. Mm-hmm. So he's looking, and I don't know where the blood ended up being. I was basically numb. I, w- I, I was uh, physically able to do what I did, but I was pretty numb to what was going on. Still in shock, yeah. I guess I was still in shock. And uh, he looked at me, and the first words out of his mouth was, I think I mentioned it, was, oh, shit. <laughs> and I knew then for sure that I was not a pretty sight. Um, and I had my eyes closed because it was full of stuff. Yeah. And uh, I was lucky I was able to actually close my eyes. Um, but uh, so they immediately flew me over to the hospital ship, repose. And they got me in the OR immediately. And uh, did all, took all kinds of stuff. They did what they could do. Yeah, the ophthalmologist came and um, he actually apologized. Oh, really? Yeah, that was one of the sad moments um, because he pulled out a stick out of my left eye, which is the eye that I see with today. Uh And he didn't realize because it went into my, between my lids, it went in at an angle so it kind of missed the eyeball. It went around the eyeball. That's what he thought. Oh. And he pulled it out. And in the pulling out process, it tore more of my eye. So and what kind of vision do you have now? So I have uh, no central vision. Um, so no macular. Um, I don't see nasally. Okay. And I don't see up above. So it limits my sight to about maybe 10%. Yeah. And I have a lower temporal vision. Mm-hmm. And uh, I use that. Okay. I have used that for freaky 52 years. Still and, pushing, man. And uh, uh, another uh, quick story was... When I went to my uh, uh, medical hearing for medical retirement, because um, they have to retire officers, uh-huh. because uh, it was a very good possibility, they say, that you would become a lifer. Um, all officers are basically dedicated for life, Yeah, I guess. So uh, at the hearing, they... Uh, gave me uh, what was it 80% of actual eye loss um, but 100% 
because of my unemployability, I still had the vision nod of both eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was November of, uh, uh, I think it was November. I don't know when the hearing was. I was retired on November 30th of 67. Okay. Um, but the hearing was just before that. And uh, <clears throat> the guy told me, he said, you know, you have macular degeneration, which is not, which is still happening at this moment. And so your chances of seeing after six months from now is unlikely. And so here I am 52 years later. Good still, thing he was wrong. Still seeing and good thing he was wrong. Yeah, I mean, you saw me walking up from what? Oh, no. 40 I, feet away, so you recognize I uh, have adapted to my little bit of sight. Really, yeah. I don't even use my cane now walking to the beach because I know what I can see and I walk there daily and most people who know me yeah. uh, see me and... Yeah, uh, that's how I've seen you. I've seen you walk down before, and so again, like I've said before, this you're the you're like the perfect candidate for this kind of podcast because you're an example of somebody that's just walking down the street that I've seen before, and before I was introduced to you by you know Jared, Jared our neighbor, um, I didn't know you would you know you were a marine that had been shot down, and you so you're one of these people that carry one of these extraordinary stories that um, that I want to tell. I want people to hear and. You know, so I appreciate you coming on, and yeah. I appreciate you. I mean, it can't be an easy topic, obviously, to talk about some stuff like that. I've been so used to it. it uh, I'm well. Either way, I appreciate. I'm not you. afraid. I appreciate <laughs> you coming on, and I'm definitely gonna. I'm definitely gonna come back, and we're gonna have to set something up, a follow up, and talk about some more of your your uh, stories and stuff. And maybe I got a buddy who was a Harrier pilot. Next time, he he said next time he's in town, he wants to sit down and do an interview. So maybe I can get. Oh, sure. three of us together. That would be have fun. an old school and a new school pilot talk. That'd be and, real fun. Uh, yeah, that'll be great. But I know you got to get going, yep. so I'm going to wrap up here. I appreciate again. I appreciate it. Do you want to? Do you have any organizations or anything that you want to give a shout out to? Or uh, really, uh, one you know, VMFA 122 and 542 were my squadrons uh, that were here. Uh, well, one Vietnam, one on the West Coast, and I don't know if they're active anymore at all. I haven't really looked them up because. Usually they go uh, inactive. Yeah. Um, Depending after. on the needs of the Marine Corps. Yeah. 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 Okay. So. All right. Well, hey, thanks. Thanks again. And uh, my everyone, pleasure. Yeah. We'll have a good one. Good. All right. Thanks again to Jerry for coming on. I appreciate it. I, it sucks we're crunch for time. Um, we're going to get another podcast going and hear some more of these, <laughs> these stories about flight training in Vietnam and stuff like that. Um, I apologize. I meant to, uh, bring it up in the opening. Um, I apologize for the, there's like construction noise. That's Jerry's neighbor. Of course, right. Literally like minutes after we start recording, um, you hear him start, you know, working up the apartment. It is what it is. Um, but I didn't want to, I didn't, once it started, I didn't want to stop, um, because I've been waiting so long to get this podcast going. So anyway, again, Appreciate Jerry talking uh, about a story and about, um, I mean, punching out in Vietnam. That is just insane, right? I mean, that's just crazy. So um, I'm looking forward to hearing some more stories from him. As always, check out my website, jkramergraphics.com. Um, hit me up on Instagram at jkramergraphics. Twitter on former Action Guys number four, MER Action Guys. 
and then shoot any questions you have and not just questions about um podcast or guests if you just have general questions like military questions stuff like that that you want asked or responded or response to uh feel free to hit me up and i'll you know i'll do my best or i'll reach out to somebody i know and, and see if i can find an answer for you so hit me up at former action guys podcast at gmail.com thanks again for listening please 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 if you're on Apple, go and um, give it a five-star review. You know, give me some. You don't have to give five star if you don't want to, but I appreciate it more if you do. Um, and leave a leave an actual review that helps out and it helps bump me up in the ratings a little bit, so that I actually get a little bit of visibility within the ecosystem. You know, where they keep all the podcasts. Um, all right, I will see everybody next week. Like I said before, we're gonna have me, Sergeant Major Off at Tracy and. Um, um, Michael Farrell, who was a board observer, or he was a radio operator who lap moved to become a board observer, and he was with First Anglico as well. So um, we're all going to sit down and crack some beers and talk about it. It's going to be a good time. So I will see you guys next Thursday. Take it easy. <laughs>